Hello, and welcome to the podcast devoted to helping you hear well done from the lips of the master after running the race he has marked out for you. May I ask you a question? Is anything more beautiful, spectacular, and wonderful than God's creation of woman? I think not. She is the crowning achievement of God's creation process. She is the one for whom a husband is to die. Yet, we live in a culture that has profoundly marred the portrait of fulfilled womanhood as God designed it to be, and it is our feminine loved ones who are suffering from it. This episode seeks to put a spotlight on the egalitarian feminist culture that is misshaping our loved ones' views of womanhood in sharp contrast to God's perfect design revealed in Scripture. We then examine this portrait in the person of Mary, the mother of Jesus, so that we who are husbands, fathers, and grandfathers can help our female loved ones delight in biblical womanhood instead of being told by the culture that they should be ashamed of it. For joining us today for season four, episode number 50 of Mission Focused Men for Christ. My name is Gary Gagel. Here's a sample of what our daughters and granddaughters are hearing today about womanhood. Your feelings of wanting to be a nurturer need to be denied. Real fulfillment comes in being like men. Wanting to nurture children makes you weak and exposes you to male oppression. Observing differences between girls and boys is old-fashioned and sexist. It causes girls and women to be exploited. To have value, you must prove you can do anything a male can do. Seeing males as protectors is old-fashioned, weak, sexist, and even dangerous. Be independent. Never let yourself be in a position where you must depend upon a man. The gender binary was imposed on culture by white Christian males to oppress transgender people. If you don't fit the stereotype of girly girls, you are transgender. A wife submitting to her husband is demeaning, period. It proves she thinks she is inferior to him. She is not inferior and should never submit to him. God never said a wife should be submissive to her husband. That was Paul's idea and the other male writers of the Bible who were influenced by the backwards, misogynist, ancient cultures of the Jews and Romans that didn't yet understand women's equality. Never acknowledge that estrogen affects you as a woman or that testosterone in males makes them any different from you. You must prove you are no different from men. All generalizations about gender, behavior, and characteristics are evil, outdated stereotyping. Valuing motherhood is passe and proves you are out of touch with modern womanhood. The biblical view that marriage is between one man and one woman and that children need both a mother and a father is passe and homophobic. You may be romantically attracted to men, but you don't know your sexual orientation for sure until you try sex with another woman. 
These false narratives are causing something very precious to erode in the hearts of the rising generation of girls, an understanding of the womanhood she was designed by her creator to experience. God's message to our daughters is, do not be conformed to this world. God's message to us as men is, pick up your weapons and fight to guide your daughter into truth. The weapons of our warfare have divine power to destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God and take every thought captive to obey Christ. Notice the words in this description of battle that have to do with thinking correctly. Arguments, opinion, knowledge, thought. Ideas have consequences. Bad ideas have victims. Those victims are our beloved, treasured daughters. Let's consider four pollutants in the cultural water we drink and swim in that are poisoning our kids. First, the lie of egalitarianism. That is, all hierarchical structures of authority are unjust. No matter how good a democratic republic may be at the national level of government, God did not design the home and church as democracies. Egalitarians' hatred of authority structures emanates from the heart of Satan, the ultimate egalitarian, who said, I will be like God as he rebelled, and who tempted Eve to be like God and also rebel against his authority. The argument that submission implies inferiority is thoroughly refuted by Jesus, fully equal to God the Father, but who submitted himself to the Father to accomplish our redemption. Besides, everyone knows that organizational structures are needed for society to function. They reveal nothing about a person's worth. The quarterback calls the plays, but he doesn't get paid the most, and he's not necessarily the MVP of the team. Leonardo DiCaprio and Kate Winslet submitted to the director in the production of the Titanic, but they were still the stars. Tom Brady, the GOAT, greatest of all time, submitted to Bill Belichick. Second lie, the lie of critical theory. The most accurate way to view society, according to this theory, is through the lens of the oppressors like white, male, heterosexuals, and the oppressed, people of color, females, homosexuals, etc. The accusation of the Bible as promoting unjust oppression of women by men comes from this false worldview that makes all men oppressors and all women oppressed by definition. This evil ideology, critical theory, justifies the revolutionary overthrow of government. It was used by Lenin and Stalin in the Soviet Union, Mao in China, Pol Pot in Cambodia, and led to the wholesale slaughter of over 85 million people in these countries. It was also used by Black Lives Matter to excuse burning and looting in our cities in 2020. Few in history were oppressed like the Christians were by the Roman Emperor Nero, who were fed to wild beasts in the arena and used as human torches. 
Yet Paul's and Peter's counsel to Christians, and Paul's counsel specifically to Christians in Rome, is a total contradiction of critical theory's justification of lawlessness by the oppressed in that theory. His words, let every person be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. Can you imagine what would have happened to the church in church history if Christians had fomented a revolt against the Roman government? The third lie is that of subjectivism. We are seeing right now the triumph of the modern self. This irrational ideology convinces its adherents that their feelings are truth. It is embodied in the false unscientific claim that gender is a social construct. Transgender ideology attempts to base reality on the subjective feelings a person has instead of biologic and genetic reality. Feelings don't determine reality anywhere else in life. We don't allow our feelings to determine our height, weight, eye color, skin color, or shoe size. These are objectively determined for us at birth. Even if we are adopted, we can't change the DNA that shapes our eye color, height, weight, and shoe size. This is reality. That reality doesn't change according to how we feel about it. Feelings don't determine gender either. The fourth pollutant in our cultural waters is a series of lies about the biblical treatment of women. We must help our rising girls know the true facts of history. The Bible has consistently elevated women. In nearly every ancient culture but Israel's, women were considered inferior to men. Aristotle, for example, considered women to be essentially the result of birth defects. They were, quote-unquote, misbegotten men. It is a fact of history that Jewish women were more highly valued than women in any other ancient culture. When God himself broke into history, we see Jesus demonstrate revolutionary respect for women. From Jesus' healing of the woman with an issue of blood, to his protecting of the woman caught in adultery, to his affirmation of the woman who washed his feet with her hair, Jesus was radical in the way he treated women as the full equals of men, having intrinsic value because they, like men, are fully made in God's image. Christianity has always affirmed women to be full members of the body of Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is neither male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. This is consistent with Genesis 1 and 2. Women are equal, but the scriptures say in many, many other places that they are different from men with different roles in the home and the church. History records, in fact, that because of Roman disdain for females, the typical family would keep all the healthy boys born to them, but only one girl, drowning or abandoning the other girls. But the early Christians would find the abandoned little girls, adopt them, and raise them in their loving homes. Several generations after this practice began, Roman men ran out of Roman women to marry. 
they found lovely wives in the homes of Christians who led the men to Christ. In fact, this is part of the way Christianity spread through the Roman Empire. Some facts about Christianity's elevation of women. So now let's turn our eyes toward Mary, beautiful femininity in action as it was designed to be. From Luke 1, verses 34 and following, And Mary said, How can this be, since I am a virgin? And the angel answered her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. And behold, your relative Elizabeth, in her old age, has also conceived a son. And this is the sixth month with her who was called barren. For nothing will be impossible with God. And Mary said, Behold, I am the slave of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. Mary goes to be with Elizabeth. When Mary enters the house of John the Baptist, the baby in Elizabeth's womb stirs, causing Elizabeth to cry out, Blessed is she who believed that there would be a fulfillment of what was spoken to her from the Lord. Then we have Mary's song of praise, which is called the Magnificat. It reveals the magnificent picture of the heart of this godly woman. My soul shall magnify the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior, for he has looked on the humble estate of his servant. For behold, from now on, all generations will call me blessed. For he who is mighty has done great things for me, and holy is his name. And his mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. He has shown his strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in their thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. Peter, who knew Mary, would later identify four characteristics of godly women in his first letter, 1 Peter 3, verses 1 through 4. Meekness, a quiet spirit, purity, and reverence. Let's examine these four characteristics of feminine beauty lived out in Mary. First, meekness. The Greek word proutes is used to describe the strength of a spirited horse which yields to the control of its rider. This inner attitude of surrender to the Lord makes a woman beautiful, says Peter. And we see this heart in Mary in spades, beginning with her response to Gabriel's words, Behold, I am the slave of the Lord. Be it unto me according to your word. Michael Card, in his commentary on Luke, comments, Of all that she does not know, one thing seems perfectly clear to her. It is a perspective that will help her navigate the deep waters into which the small vessel of her life is about to go. It will be the source of her disturbingly clear obedience. She perfectly articulates this fundamental reality with her first response to the angel's troubling news. I am the Lord's 
slave. Different translations soften the language. Some render the word doule, the feminine form of doulos, servant. Others use the even softer handmaiden. But Mary is affirming that she is the slave of the Lord. She is surrendering her rights, her hopes, and dreams, and her own body absolutely to him. Mary seems to know that she is owned by another. Meekness is humbly surrendering to the role God assigned me to play because I trust him and belong to him. This, by the way, is the exact opposite of the attitude of modern feminists, even those who claim to be Christian, who rail against God's design of male and female to be equal in worth, yet assigned different roles in the home and church. Feminists arrogantly demand that they will decide what equal is, and equality must erase distinctions. They substitute sameness for equality. How might we affirm meekness in our daughters? Here are some questions. In what ways do you see your daughter responding to God the way Mary did? I am yours. Do with me what you will. Number two, how does your daughter demonstrate unselfishness? Number three, how does she demonstrate a servant's heart? The second category from Peter that we want to look at is a quiet spirit. Back in 1 Peter 3, the Greek word Peter used for quiet was hesukoios, which indicates tranquility arising from within, causing no disturbance to others. Having a quiet spirit means being at rest inside. It arises from contentment and trust in God to handle the circumstances. It is the opposite of complaining. Mary does ask Gabriel how she could be the Messiah's mother since she was a virgin, a simple inquiry that Gabriel seems happy to answer. However, unlike Zechariah, the father of John, who was punished for his unbelief, Mary does not doubt Gabriel's words, but quietly trusts God to work out the details of her life. Her confidence in God to work out everything for her ultimate good is the key to her contentment. She trusts God with the circumstances over which she has no control. That is the beauty of a quiet spirit. How can we affirm that in our daughters? Number one, Have you seen her quietly trust the Lord with some tough things? Number two, in what ways have you seen your daughter overcome worry with her faith? Number three, how have you seen her choose a contented attitude over complaining? The third beautiful quality we want to look at is purity. Mary and Joseph, though engaged, were virgins. In a world that will scorn the daughters of our church for saving sex from marriage, we need to protect their hearts from the lies of Satan and the culture. We need to help them see a few things. First, that sex is exhilarating, heart-pounding, fun, and an enormously pleasurable gift of God to married couples. Second, that their instinctive feeling of discomfort when they are naked in the locker room or doctor's office tells them something. It causes them to quickly cover their private parts. This God-given instinct to cover our nakedness is intended by God to protect us. It reminds us that nakedness is unsafe. 
the regular vulnerability of sex and nakedness only works in the safety of a pledge by the one sharing our nakedness to love us unconditionally in plenty and in want, in joy and in sorrow, in sickness and in health, as long as we both shall live. Third, they need to see that having sex with one who is not committed lifelong to unconditionally loving us but moves on is like two pieces of paper glued together and trying to tear those papers apart again. Their soul gets torn. And fourth, we need to help them see that it is Christianity's high view of sex as precious the ultimate expression of vulnerability and of giving one's whole self to another that lies behind its teaching that it be saved for marriage. Well, gloriously, Mary was sexually pure. The fourth jewel that Peter mentions and we see in Mary's character is called reverence, fearing the Lord, not man. In discussing this aspect of a woman's inner beauty, Peter's command to Christian women is to disregard what anyone thought of them but God. That is reverence. The Greek word is phobia. In context, it refers to the fear of the Lord rather than the fear of man concerning fashion. Christian women don't pursue beauty based on the culture's latest fads. Your beauty should not come from outward adornments such as elaborate hairstyles and the wearing of gold jewelry or fine clothes. Rather, your beauty should be that of your inner self, the unfading beauty, which is of great worth in God's sight. The hairstyles of Peter's day were extreme. He is not saying, look frumpy for Jesus, but focus on a richer, more elegant, more stunning beauty, that of the heart. When we look at Mary's Magnificat, we see her lifting up those who have this quality, who fear the Lord rather than fearing man. She's talking about herself. She exalts the upside-down values of God's kingdom people in contrast to the wrong values of the fallen world. And his mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. He has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate." Only heaven will reveal the true beauty of Mary's determination to fear God rather than men. When she allowed God to make her pregnant without being married, the price she paid in her legalistic Jewish small-town community must have been staggering. As soon as she began to show, the tongues must have started wagging. Yeah, that Mary girl seems really pious, but if you ask me, she and Joseph have been messing around. How many jokes would have been cracked about Mary and Joseph's explanation for the pregnancy? Into the only home she knew and only extended family she had, she brought enormous shame in a small town where everyone would know about her out-of-wedlock pregnancy. It is hard to imagine one suffering the rejection of her community any more severely. Had Mary and Joseph not had to leave Nazareth to go to Bethlehem for the census, might they have been thrown out of the synagogue? But Mary chose to fear God 
not men. How do we affirm this fear of the Lord rather than man in our daughters? Number one, how has she demonstrated that she wants to please God? Number two, how have you seen her demonstrate courage? Three, in what ways have you seen her resist peer pressure to do the right thing? Mary is a portrait of true, feminine, staggering beauty. A servant's heart, quiet inner trust in God about her circumstances, a devotion to saving her sexuality for her husband so she can give it freely to him when she marries, a determination to be pleasing to the Lord instead of a people pleaser. When we see a glimpse like this of our ladies, such glorious beauty deserves our praise. And with that, perhaps a reminder that this kind of beauty lasts forever. To summarize this episode, we began by looking at the cultural waters that the rising generation of girls is swimming in and drinking. In those waters is the poisonous message that those who are tragically deceived about the nature of womanhood and its fulfillment are sending. In fact, those messages are almost the exact opposite of what God has revealed to us about fulfilled womanhood. We noted that the messages our daughters and granddaughters are hearing arise from four pollutants in those cultural waters, the lie of egalitarianism, all hierarchical structure of authority is unjust, the lie of critical theory, the biblical teaching about gender roles reflects the unjust patriarchy by which males always oppress females, the lie of subjectivism, that what you feel is more true than objective reality. So, feeling you are male trumps the scientific truth that you are female. And fourth, the lie that biblical teaching is misogynistic, when in fact both the Old Testament treatment of women and Jesus' treatment of women elevated the status of women in contrast to other worldviews. We then set our eyes on the spectacular beauty of a woman named Mary. That beauty flowed from a heart of surrender as the doulos, slave of her master, a beautiful inner spirit of quiet trust in her God's ability to guide the circumstances of her life that she could not control, sexual purity that was devoted to saving her sexuality for her future husband, and a heart-driven allegiance to God that was so strong that she endured enormous unjust scorn, derision, and shame by allowing herself to become pregnant by the Holy Spirit out of wedlock. We also noted that those wanting to look at spectacular feminine beauty ought to look at the Magnificat, where Mary's stunning heart beauty is revealed. At this cultural moment, we men must affirm this kind of beauty in our feminine loved ones, pointing them to true womanly elegance, or the world will corrupt their view of womanhood. For further prayerful thought, number one, which of the four pollutant worldviews in our culture about womanhood concerns you the most? See your show notes for additional questions. Today's podcast, as all podcasts are, is available in printed format on my website, forgingbonds.org. Also on this homepage is a link to an index of past podcast series and episodes that you might want to listen to when you have a chunk of free time. This link is also in your show notes. 
Some of you have graciously asked, especially at this time of year, how you might support the podcast financially. We could use the help. That would enable us to reach more men with it. In the show notes, there is a link to enable you to make an online contribution should you desire to do so. Next week, we continue our Advent series learning from the actors in the Christmas drama by taking a look at the Magi, a picture of seeking the kingdom of God. Thanks for joining us for today's podcast.